This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We start with contract talks between the B.C. government and the big public sector unions in the province. Lots of the big unions at the bargaining table right now. Teachers, nurses, hospital workers, liquor store work workers at the bargaining table seeking a significant raise. Let's find out how the talks are going. My guest is Stephanie Smith, president of the BCGEU, one of the largest public sector unions in B.C. I'm pleased to welcome her back. Stephanie, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Okay, Stephanie, the last time we talked, you said there was a chasm between the union and the government at the bargain, bargaining table. And it's, it sounds like things, you guys are still far apart. What's the latest here? Yes, um, unfortunately, uh, that is still the case. Uh, you know, we, we saw the employer's first wage offer. Uh, we asked them to please go back and uh, speak to decision makers and have them understand that there is absolutely no way we could put this wage offer in front of our 33,000 members who work in the public service. We how, waited much, how, much over two weeks. how much did they offer? How much did they offer? Pardon? How much did they offer? Well, um, I know we've released the numbers in the second wage offer. Uh, we could say that it was actually very close to the second wage offer. So uh, when they came back after we waited two weeks, they had moved tiny, tiny bit. And again, our bargaining committee looked at that. We looked at rates of inflation. We looked at the cost of living for our members. And we knew we couldn't put this in front. So we're at impasse. Okay, I'm, I'm looking at some of the numbers that have come out so far. Stephanie, you correct me if this is if this is wrong. Okay, so it looks like government offering 1.75 percent in year one, plus 25 cents an hour. That's I've, correct. I've, okay, well, I've never I've never seen a wage offer like that. It's weird. Kind of a percentage increase plus a plus a, a quarter an hour, 25 cents an hour. It's strange. Well, not not necessarily. I mean, okay. we've moved to percentage wage increases, but you know, if if your listeners think of of an accordion, in thirty three thousand jobs, you have those that are at the higher end of the scale earning money, and those at the lower. And when you have percentage increases, those at the higher end benefit more. But they, they get more money, and so that accordion right. sort of stretches out. A flat wage offer, a flat hour percent, or sorry, a, a cents per hour wage offer brings that accordion back in and benefits the lower wage. Our wage proposal actually also includes a, a flat rate increase in the second year because we need to address the fact that those at the bottom end of the scale have fallen further and further and further behind. Okay, speaking of Stephanie Smith, president of the BCGEU union, so the government offering 1.75% and the union seeking 5% or the inflation rate, whichever is higher, correct? That is correct. Okay, that is so, correct, you, so yeah. that is far apart because the inflation rate right now is what, 5%? Well, uh, CPI, it's over 5%. Um, you know, we heard this morning in the United States, it's creeping north of 8% now, and we know Whoa. that Canada's not far behind. I don't have to tell your listeners, Mike, just how expensive everything is getting. And what's also of real concern for our membership is, you know, it's not unusual or uncommon for um, 
banks to increase, uh, you know, um, I've lost the word now all of a sudden, the interest rates. Thank you, interest rates. And so everything is getting more and more expensive, including debt, just as our members' wages are losing money power. Okay, hard bargaining going on. Let me play a clip here for you from Premier John Horgan, who was asked the other day about the state of contract talks with the with the unions, and here's what the Premier had to say, and then we'll get your thoughts. What I want to do in the time I have available is to make sure we have a human resource strategy to make sure that we get the right people to do the work that's needed. Does that involve negotiations with big unions in British Columbia? Absolutely it does. But we need, to, we need more money coming in. Okay, he says he needs more money. So where is the money supposed to come from? Like if you take a, if you do the math on this, Stephanie, a five percent wage increase across the board. Let's say all the unions go for the same wage hike. Yeah, you know, that's like ten billion dollars over three years. Where is that money supposed to come from? Well, I, you know, I I am not an economist, uh, but we certainly at our union have an amazing team of actuaries and researchers, and our treasurer, Paul Finch, who loves uh, looking at the economy, we know that this is actually affordable, and it's affordable within the budget that the B.C. government has currently released, and we know that the economic forecast for B.C. is really great. We've heard Minister Ravi Kalan say, we're going to need a million workers over the next 10 years. The truth of the matter is, we know that we need workers right now, and for a robust public service that provides the services that people in British Columbia rely on, we need to be able to compete and attract the best. We've got the best now. We need to keep them. Well, I'm I'm not sure, though, that a 5% wage increase can be accommodated in this budget, because if you look at the last provincial budget, $10 billion, if that's what this deal costs, I mean, that's the entire contingency fund in the whole budget for things like fighting wildfires and floods and heat domes and, and weather events. So... You know, that would consume an entire contingency fund that's set aside for an emergency. So, well, I, mean, I think, need, again... That's why, you... I mean, that's why Horgan's saying they need more money. So, like, where do they get the money? Like, are you suggesting they raise taxes to pay for it? No, and, and oh. in fact, we believe that this can be done without raising taxes. And not to, uh, again, but to remind everyone that, in fact, robust public services creates income. It is a, an economic stimulator. It, you know, it's our members that process all of the permits for things like logging and mining and forestry. It's our members, as you mentioned at the top of your show, liquor store is a great revenue generator for um, government that is then used to support other public services. So without a robust public sector, you can't have a robust private sector. And all of the programs, as I said, you know, when we're reducing poverty, when we're, we're supporting people in critical situations, it is our members that respond to the crises you mentioned, wildfire, floods, we need a robust public service that keeps our economy moving. We kept it going over the last two years of COVID. We've seen how effective it is. We need to see that going into the future. And the only way we're going to do that is if we are able to keep the workers who do those jobs. Stephanie, you posted on Twitter yesterday, preparing for impasse and job action is part of bargaining. Uh-oh, job action. What, is, what are you signaling there? Is it strike? Is a well, we're, we, you know, we are at impasse, and honestly, Mike, what happens next is entirely in the hands of the employer. Uh, we're ready to take a phone call and get back to the bargaining table when they're ready to come to us with a, a serious wage proposal we could put in, our, in front of our members to, to vote for. 
But we will prepare for every eventuality. And so, yes, right now we're going to be speaking with our members. We're going to be doing a lot of reach out and we're going to be planning to take a strike vote. That's going to take time. As I said, we've got 33,000 folks. And uh, so organizing something like that is a big effort. And also, you know, job action can take a lot of different forms. But again, it's entirely up to the employer at this point what happens next. Stephanie, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. All right, let's talk about the race for the Conservative Party leadership now. Conservative MP Pierre Polyev, he's been a frequent guest on this show in the past. And man, the crowds that this guy is getting on his campaign run here. He just did a campaign swing through British Columbia, drew very, very large crowds uh, wherever he went. Can this guy be stopped? Looks like he's on the fast track here to win this party leadership, become the leader of the opposition in the House of Commons in Ottawa. Imagine an election between Polyev versus Trudeau. Man, that'll be rock'em sock'em if that's how it all shakes out. Now, have a listen to this. When Polyev was in Vancouver this week, I think he's running a very clever campaign. He, He seizes on local issues that are top of mind for people. Here is a part of his video where he visited a home in Vancouver. When you look at the home, it looks like a teardown, and it's on sale for nearly $5 million. Have a listen to Polyev here. Want to see a $5 million house here in Vancouver? Feast your eyes on the home of your dreams. Here it is. $4.8 million is the listing price for this baby. A Polyev government would require municipalities like Vancouver speed up building permits and reduce the governmental cost associated with building things. My message to City Hall here in Vancouver is remove the gatekeepers. Stop blocking the poor, the working class, and our immigrants from the privilege of owning a home here in this country. Pierre Polyev on the campaign trail this week, getting a lot of attention here in British Columbia, including from B.C. Liberal MLA Mike DeYoung, who this week endorsed Pierre Polyev for the Conservative Party leadership. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Grace Lore. Grace is the NDP MLA for Victoria Beacon Hill. And uh, she was not impressed with Diong's endorsement of Polyev here. Grace, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I think this is an important conversation. Yeah, for sure. And you were speaking out on Twitter this week about Mike Diong endorsing Pierre Polyev for the Conservative Party leadership. You don't often see that kind of cross-pollination here between federal-provincial policy, but, but that jumped out at you. What did you think of that? Absolutely. Uh, it did jump out at me. I think it's very concerning. We've got a senior BC Liberal MLA uh, endorsing a candidate for the Conservatives, the federal Conservatives, uh, who has had uh, uh, extreme views, who has supported uh, the uh, convoy, supported the anti-vax convoy, uh, a convoy where we know that many of the leaders uh, hold white supremacist views uh, who are facing charges. And what we've got is Kevin Falcon's, uh, one of Kevin Falcon's senior MLAs here, uh, saying, yes, this is what I see as political leadership. And to me, that is extremely concerning. And I think it's out of step with most British Columbians. Okay, well, Polyev 
was pretty clear, I thought, that he wasn't supporting people in the trucker convoy who hold extremist views. And he says he, he condemned that and said that they should be held individually responsible. But he said he wasn't prepared to condemn the the entire convoy or for the 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 issues that they stood for based on the views of just individuals in the crowd. Does that not make it? What do you think of that rationalization of it? What I think is that people have a right to peaceful political protest. People have a right to their opinions, to sharing their ideas. But what we had was a group that was holding a Ottawa neighborhood hostage with noise at all hours. Uh, people were not feeling safe in the streets. Um, and a number of the key front figures holding these views, espousing violence. And I don't, I don't think one can separate out uh, uh, that piece of the broader convoy. This is not to suggest that people cannot protest and have different views. But what we had there was something extreme. And uh, this is at a time when here in British Columbia, people have done what's right, what we've asked them to do. Uh, vaccination and, you know, among the highest in the world, showing up to be, to keep themselves and each other safe. And yeah. to take a stance that's supportive of anti-vax that had these elements and for the BC Liberals to say, sure, at a minimum, that's not a deal breaker. Okay, let me play a clip here for you, Polyev. He's commenting on the precise point that you're raising here because, you know, you're not the first to say, oh, he was supporting this trucker convoy. Shame on him. And here's what he had to say about illegal blockades. I mean, we had this blockade in downtown Ottawa. We had, we saw truckers were blocking roads and border crossings and bridges. And he says he's not, he's opposed to those blockades. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts, Pierre Poliev. I've always been against blockades and I still am now because I don't believe you can gain your freedom by blocking someone else's. So yes to peaceful protests, no to blockades. Okay, so he's making it, I think, pretty clear there that he was not in favor of any illegal blockades. But your thoughts? Uh, well, a few things. That convoy was honking horns of all hours of the night. People had to go to court to uh, to get an injunction. Uh, my constituents were facing this around the legislature. So yeah. uh, to the extent that we can call uh, what he was supporting there to carve off a piece, uh, I, I'm not sure. But, you know, I, what I also want to say that it is not just the support of this convoy that was anti-vax, that was uh, that has uh, it absolutely included a white supremacist element. He wants to and has promised to cancel the carbon tax, for example. Uh, you know, he ha he was advocating for uh, getting rid of support during the pandemic. You know, almost a year before it was, they were actually rolled back because people still needed them. Um, so while this is this is a huge component of my concern about a, a senior BC Liberal under Kevin Falcon supporting Pierre Polyev, it's not the only thing. I think it's a pattern of allowing extremist views that are out of step with most British Columbians that is not about building uh, a province and a country inclusive of all people. Um, and and I, I think it's well, troubling to have our BC Liberals supporting this candidate. Okay, well, Polyev has said that Part of his platform is he would cancel the federal carbon tax, but it would be hands off of a provincial carbon tax. So here in British Columbia, we have a provincial carbon tax. He says he would not do anything about that. That's provincial jurisdiction. So why would that 
why would that concern you? Like, why would you why would you be wading into like federal jurisdiction there? What I think is indicative of values and priorities. And what we're seeing is the, the uh, BC Liberals saying, yes, that's what I see as important uh, political leadership in this time. And to me, that's out of step with where we need to go. It's out of step where most British Columbians are. Um, and I, I, I think that what we're seeing uh, is the BC Liberals telling us what's important to them and what they value. Yeah. And I, I don't I, I don't think it's what's good for British Columbians. I'm, I'm not sure Poliev is completely out of step with the way a lot of people are feeling in British Columbia right now. Like, like if I take a look at Mike DeYoung's statement that he put out supporting Poliev, he, he writes, quote, I've been waiting for a federal leader who's prepared to speak out about the dangers of perpetual budget deficits, spiraling debt, rising inflation, increasing interest rates. Poliev has demonstrated he has the courage to address these issues. How is that out of step with the most British Columbians? I think a lot of British Columbians are worried about those issues. Without a doubt, the cost of living, these are things that are of concern to British Columbians. But a couple of things here, Mike. One, you don't get to carve off part of, of an issue and say that somebody, Pierre Polyev, who's used coded language uh, around anti-Semitism, who has promoted uh, conspiracy theories, um, someone, you, you don't get to carve off those things and say, I'm willing to look away. Second, when we think about economic recovery, that's happening here in British Columbia. There are more people working now than before the pandemic. And fundamentally, we need to build an economic recovery. We need to tackle these challenges in a way that includes everyone. And that is absolutely not what Pierre Polyev is suggesting. Okay, that so... is not what we're seeing an endorsement for. Um, and we also don't get to ignore the ways in which the, he has used coded language, has expressed harmful views. Okay, so what are you saying now to the new BC Liberal leader, then Kevin, Kevin Falcon, on this point? So here is one of his, his more prominent MLAs has endorsed Polyev. Are you calling on Falcon to, to, to demand that he, uh, Diong withdraw that endorsement? Or what's, what would you say to him? Yeah. You know, I'm not going to tell the BC Liberals how to uh, organize themselves. What I will say is this is a pattern of allowing extremist views. It is just last week, we had another uh, BC Liberal MLA make a tweet about how talking about uh, gender and race is divisive, when actually it was the day after a Transgender Day of Visibility, where we're working to make uh, our province more inclusive, working to tackle uh, racism, to take steps towards an anti-racist approach. So for me, this is another step of a senior BC Liberal supporting someone um, that I don't think we get to, we don't get to look away uh, about their views, uh, about their support uh, for uh, anti-Semitism, for a convoy that did fundamentally have racist elements. All right, Grace, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the housing crunch here in British Columbia and across the country. Canada has laid out an ambitious plan here to drastically increase the pace of new home building in Canada over the next decade. That was contained in the recent federal budget, which contained nearly $10 billion in new housing spending in the Justin Trudeau Liberal government plan uh, for housing over the next 10 years. Now, here's a question for you. Where are we going to get all the workers to build all these new houses? Justin Trudeau spoke about this in Victoria yesterday uh, during a visit to British Columbia. Here's what he had to say about all that new housing stock. A partnership with municipalities to reduce the barriers that municipalities are seeing to creating new housing stocks. Billions of dollars, it'll go towards uh, helping them shift zoning regulations, uh, accelerate permitting, uh, move forward on solutions around federal land that will allow for the creation of significantly more housing stock. And we're talking about doubling the new housing starts uh, over the next 10 years in this country to really go at the challenge of supply. All right, doubling, doubling the number of new houses that are being built in Canada. Is that possible, especially with the labor shortage that we're seeing out there right now? Let's discuss that with my guest, Robert Kavchik, senior economist at the Bank of Montreal. Robert, thank you for coming on today. Hey, great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it a lot. When you hear the prime minister there talk about this very ambitious plan to build all these houses, doubling the pace of new home building in Canada. Is that possible right now with the, the trade shortages we're seeing? Uh, n- no. And and look, like they obviously mean well with, with what they put in the budget uh, last week, and obviously they are targeting uh, what, what seem to be all the right areas of the market, both on the demand and the supply side. But realistically, I mean, the, the housing sector as it is today, we are already looking at a record number of units under construction, the job market and the material side are extremely tight. Um, if we're going to you know, r- realistically thinking about doubling that pace over the next 10 years, if we think that's the right policy anyway, which is which is itself debatable, um, just physically, it just it just it just doesn't seem like it can happen. Okay, well, let's talk about whether it is the right policy or not. Like a lot of people seem to think that this is the right thing to do, and we're seeing kind of cross-party support for building more homes and and trying to get municipalities to start a- approving more building. Do the do the numbers not indicate that we need more housing? Like, the, is the population surging ahead of the home building pace we're seeing in the country right now? Well, population growth for sure is is strong, and, and demographic growth within Canada is strong. If you think of the aging millennial group, um, and they're all having families and kids right now as well, as well. So you can think of the demand for housing from that side. So from, from that sense, yes. Um, there's a bit of a overemphasis on the supply side, I think, and we always hear the you know comment that Canada has the lowest housing stock per capita in the G7, and that's kind of the basis for all of this. Well, Canada has the lowest housing stock per capita for for some pretty fundamentally explainable reasons, like the fact that we just have a younger population and larger households and stuff like that. So, 
they actually don't look too out of whack from that perspective. Um, but I mean, anything that, that increases the responsiveness of supply to market condition obviously is, is, is something that we can uh, we could say is, is a good move. I think really at the end of the day, though, that the acute increase in home prices we've seen since the pandemic has been almost entirely on the demand side. And, you know, as, as, as the Bank of Canada probably raises rates another 50 basis points tomorrow and, and more down the road, you're going to see the demand side cool off pretty quickly. Speaking of Robert Kavchik, he's the senior economist at the Bank of Montreal talking about Justin Trudeau's promise to double home building in B.C. Like everyone knows about the labor shortage that's particularly acute right here in British Columbia right now. Like when you take a look at the employment numbers in the country right now, Robert, I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of construction workers that are sitting around waiting to get a job. I mean, like is the country pretty much at full employment right now? Uh, yeah, no, there's there's nobody waiting around. So if you look at just even just the March numbers we got on Friday, the unemployment rate uh, in construction itself was down in the low low 4% range, I think. And that was actually the lowest on record uh, going yeah. back to the early 1970s. There's something like 70,000 job vacancies in the construction sector itself. Those are unfilled positions. So there's a tremendous there's a, tr- there's a tremendous shortage out there. And then from a demographic demographic perspective, I mean, we know the vast majority of, of, of skilled trades in this country are kind of up there on the age spectrum. And there hasn't been a lot of backfilling with, uh, with, with younger trades coming up, uh, uh, coming, you know, coming up through the ranks. So we're going to be, we're going to be constrained on this front for, for a long time. And, and then of course, if you're going to go in on, on top of these conditions, try and double the pace of housing construction within the next decade, Really, the only the only valve from an economic perspective is inflation, and that's just, that would just simply drive a lot more wage inflation, a lot more material, and home price inflation on the new side of the market at the end of the day. Wow! Wow! Okay, as far as that worker shortage goes, could Canada bring in temporary foreign workers to build all these homes? Uh, it's it's certainly like it's certainly a, um, a, a an avenue they've they've leaned on in the past, and of course yeah. the pandemic really really disrupted all of this because for for a period of about 18 months there we really turned the flow of temporary for foreign workers off because of pandemic reasons right yeah. um th- those flows are are coming back now and 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 yes that is one way that we can in the short term backfill you know some of the holes in the labor market um but it's it, it's 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 a whole other it's a whole other issue to yeah. to, to to fill what are some very skilled niches of the labor market within the construction sector itself. You think of things like electricians and plumbers and, and stuff like that, where um, it, it's not always just as simple as saying we're going to you know bring in uh, a number of temporary foreign workers and, and that's just going to ease the burden. There's a lot of rigidity there too in the job market. Last question for you. We just got one minute left here. The big concern for a lot of people is not only the supply of new housing, but the affordability of housing in Canada. Is there any proof or indication that if we double the number of new homes that are being built over the next 10 years, that that is somehow going to make these houses more affordable? Well, if, if, for, if, if somehow we are actually able to, to, to build the three and a half million homes over the next 10 years, um, which, was, which was the goal in the budget, uh, I, I I personally think we'll end up in a in a in a very saturated market by the time that period is over, mm. uh, because demographic demand is is peaking right now, and the trouble the trouble is always trying to 
bring supply to the market in a timely fashion when when demand is high. And, and, the, and I say that because demand can fall off very, very quickly. And we're actually already seeing it today, just within the last month, as rates have started to, to nudge up. We've already seen demand start to fall off. Right. But supply takes years and years to bring to the market. And we've seen examples of this over time in, you know, in, in Ontario back in the 1990s. We saw it in Calgary in the mid-2000s and again okay. uh, back after 2014 where supply comes to the market ultimately in response to demand okay. conditions one or two, three years in the past. And my concern Th- would be that all this supply comes to the market after the point when we really need it. Thank you for your time today. Great. Thanks a lot. Okay, here we go now with nuclear power in Canada and potentially in British Columbia. Could Canada expand nuclear energy to meet our climate change targets? We need a lot of clean power if we're going to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And what about all those electric vehicles we'll all be driving? British Columbia and the government of Canada have both committed to an aggressive transition to electric vehicles. Vehicles. Where will we get all this electricity? Never mind build another Site C dam. You would need a Site D dam, Site E dam. You'd have to go through the whole alphabet of dams to generate all that electricity. All right. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talked about that yesterday in Victoria. He was here in B.C. talking about electric vehicle transition. And he was asked by global news reporter Richard Zussman here, where's this electricity going to come from? Have a listen to this exchange here. SFU modelers uh, found that BC would need to at least double or triple its electricity production in less than three decades to meet these electrification targets from both the federal government and from the province. This would be the equivalent of about 20 to 30 new Site C dams. How can the federal government help invest in these sorts of projects, or is nuclear power one of the options that will have to be looked at to meet these electrification goals? Well, it's very clear, first of all, that uh, we need to reduce our emissions and we need to reduce our uh, dependence on oil and gas. We're going to need more electricity and I know there are a lot of brilliant uh, uh, innovators here in BC and across the country leaning in on that. We're there to invest in a range of pathways so that we can make sure we're not just protecting the planet, but we're creating a strong and growing economy for years to come. But nuclear, is nuclear on the table? Nuclear is on the table, absolutely. All right, Justin Trudeau yesterday speaking in Victoria, nuclear power is on the table. Let's discuss now with my guest, Professor Taco Neat from Simon Fraser University's School of Sustainable Energy Engineering. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Great, great to be here, Mike. Thanks. Okay, I find this a really interesting uh, issue. In Canada, we've got a federal government that has talked about the need to potentially expand nuclear power in the country, right? Is is that what the, the federal government is pursuing right now? Uh, that it does. Well, I'm not sure. You said sort of, is that what they're pursuing? I'm not sure they're pursuing nuclear, but I think it needs to be one of the pieces in the, the tool chest. Um, we shouldn't eliminate any resource that we might have, especially that is low carbon. Yeah. Why do you think that nuclear energy should be on the table and considered? So as an engineer, um, we look at the sort of mix of possibilities that we might be able to power our systems with. And hydro is awesome, but we can't build that many new dams in BC in short order. And so what are the other options that are available? Wind and solar are also great. They're low carbon. 
they have some other impacts. Um, solar has a, a significant land use impact, and there's impacts of building those as well. And then you need their variable, and so you need storage or, or transmission or a combination of those to make them effective at providing power for us. And then in terms of low-carbon options, geothermal we might get a little bit of, and then we run out of the list of zero-carbon electricity sources right. relatively quickly. And so nuclear, it's low-carbon, and it provides reliable power. It can provide power 24-7 um, and for years on end. And so as an engineer, it's one of the technologies that we need to consider in terms of how we build a system that keeps the lights on for everyone. Yeah, there's a lot of interest, it seems, right now in what's known as small modular reactors, or also SMRs, which are smaller than the conventional nuclear power plant, and they can be manufactured, I guess, more more easily. Can you can you talk a little bit about those SMRs? Like, what are those? So, so the concept is similar to what we do with a natural gas power plant right now, and rather than building a two gigawatt natural gas power plant we use uh we do sort of a hundred megawatt power plant but because we build uh, many of them we can build them really efficiently and so basically if you want to put together a natural gas power plant somewhere in the province right now you can almost order it out of the catalog ship it in a shipping container drop it in place hook it up to the natural gas line hook up some wires to the other end and you've got a generator that can produce 100 200 megawatts of power And the idea with small modular reactors is the same sort of um, efficiencies of scale where you can build many of them and they're all exactly the same. So you can basically order one of these out of a catalog um, and say, I need 100 megawatts. Well, what if we need 300 megawatts? Well, let's just drop three of them in place then. So the modularity is a really useful feature um, and, and for any technology and nuclear is, I guess, becoming mature enough to be able to take that in, into consideration at this point. What, what do those small modular reactors look like? Like when people think of a nuclear energy plant, they, they think about the one you see on the Simpsons, you know, with the, yeah. with the, the water reactor tower and the, and the smoke billowing out of the, or the steam billowing out, yeah. out of the top of it. Is yeah, that what exactly. they look like? Um, I w- my understanding is that they'd look very similar to a shipping container. Wow. So you'd have this shipping container. Um, I know there's a company in Denmark right now looking at a thorium reactor, and basically it's it's maybe one, maybe two shipping containers. And basically what you'd hook up to that would be a hot water line, or like a water line, and your water loop would, the cold water would go in one end, you'd get hot water out the other end, and it would do that for 50, 60 years. And then once it's sort of run down, then you'd you'd take that reactor offline and then have to deal with the, the reactor afterwards. And my understanding of the way that that reactor would work is it would be about 100 to 200 years of, of needing to deal with that, that waste afterwards, yeah. which is really not that much. Speaking to Professor Taco Neat from Simon Fraser University, should Canada and British Columbia consider nuclear power for our energy needs going forward here? Of course, a lot of people are, are worried about the environmental impact of nuclear power and the potential for a, a catastrophic accident. Everyone knows about Chernobyl and, and Three Mile Island and, and the Fukushima nuke plant. Could would these smaller plants is is are there any is there any evidence that they could be safe? Yeah, so there's there's a number of different so I think 
one of the things to realize is that nuclear is a suite of different technologies. Yeah. Um, just like solar, there's solar photovoltaic panels, which you can get multiple different models of. Um, and there's concentrated solar versus solar photovoltaic. So even solar energy is a suite of different technologies, as is nuclear. Um, should we build nuclear plants like um, the Russians did in Chernobyl, the one that actually melted down? That's probably not the right technology to choose. Um, what I understand from some of the other technologies, such as the thorium reactor that I talked about earlier, is that they can be built in a way that basically cannot melt down. Wow. And okay. so, so, but it, but it depends on the technology that you choose. And so it's a, it becomes, and with that, this is with any technology, it becomes a balance of what are the risks and what are the benefits of these different technologies. Okay, it's fascinating area of study for sure, and it's certainly on the table right now, as the Prime Minister said yesterday. Mm-hmm. Thanks, thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. Really happy to be here. Thanks a lot.